Cleared for takeoff, runway 08, orbital insertion approved. Let's go. Hey, what is up everyone? This is Jay Simpson, and you're listening to the Ignited Flight Podcast, where we bring information and inspiration for everything aeronautics and astronautics. Like I said, my name is Jay. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a disciple maker, and I'm also a private pilot and spaceflight enthusiast. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about NASA's commercial crew program, and more specifically, Boeing's entry into this opportunity through its vehicle, the CST-100 Starliner. Again, this is an exciting opportunity that NASA unveiled several years ago after the space shuttle had been retired, the idea of bringing commercial partners on board to bring astronauts into orbit and to the International Space Station. This allowed NASA to focus on other things, such as further exploration into our solar system and beyond. So NASA develops the CCP, or the Commercial Crew Program, and Long story short, Boeing and SpaceX win this contract. Sierra Nevada was developing the Dream Chaser, and it was knocked out of the running, leaving Boeing and SpaceX as the ones that would be awarded this contract, and it was highly lucrative. SpaceX's entry was the Dragon V2 capsule. It was a state-of-the-art capsule, seated up to seven people, and it could be launched on top of its Falcon 9 rocket. That's really important. Boeing's entry was the CST-100 Starliner, which is what we are going to unpack today. Now, the Starliner draws a lot of its features and design elements and even its look from Apollo-era capsules, but it's highly modernized. I don't say that to diminish its characteristics, but you look at it and you definitely can see the similarities to the Apollo capsules. CST really stands for the Crew Space Transportation. Now, the number 100 of the CST-100, we're not exactly sure what that means, but most people think that the 100 refers to 100 kilometers, or the Kármán line boundary of space, which we've talked about before. Now, the Starliner also has the capability to seat seven people. It has a very unique flight deck. It's a very incredible blend of both high-tech and familiar. It honestly feels very much like an aircraft, which can be a very good thing, again, thinking that most astronauts have incredible aviation backgrounds. But this was quite different than SpaceX's approach on the Dragon V2. Um, It was very futuristic. It had basically nothing but screens, um, much of a touchscreen interface. It did have some physical inputs, but basically very minimal. Whereas with the Starliner that Boeing developed, again drawing from its aviation heritage, it feels more like a glass cockpit feel of an aircraft. It has screens, but it also has a lot of physical inputs, and I would say not too much and not too little. It has the right balance. It's a a very good balanced approach of how they develop the flight deck. Honestly, I love how how futuristic SpaceX's Dragon Capsule's flight deck is, but I think that, honestly, Starliner wins it here. Boeing put a lot of time and effort into this, and it looks incredible. It's something that I would love to fly, and I think a lot of pilots would feel very comfortable in this. It would be have a lot of familiarity to it, which is important, obviously, when you're flying this into orbit. 
Now Starliner also features the auto dock system, or also known as the AR&D, the Auto Rendezvous and Docking System. Now this has become standard for vehicles of this type in the age that we are in. Gone are the days when the International Space Station would need to grapple incoming vehicles with the Canada arm like what they used to have to do with the Space Shuttle. Nowadays vehicles can literally dock themselves. This is very important. Obviously docking is a very complex procedure. Um, it can be difficult to perform and having the vehicle be able to identify the movements that need to be made, have the precise amount of inputs, honestly the computer can do it better than the human. Now again, through any aspect of flight, human intervention is available on the Starliner where the, the pilot, the commander can take over and do their own manual inputs, which is important. But again, for something like docking, it is an incredible feature to have auto dock and just be able to get the vehicle there and just let it do its thing. Probably the most unique feature of Starliner, um, and probably my second favorite right after the, the layout of the cockpit out of that flight deck, is the flexibility and how Starliner can land. Now Starliner can land uh, like in the ocean, which is typical of like an Apollo era capsule they would splash down in the Pacific, and even SpaceX nowadays, they actually also land um, in the ocean. They have some more um, flexibility as to where they can land. We can make that uh, determination much more precisely of where we want to put the craft down. Uh, but Starliner can not only land in the ocean, it can also land on land. And it does this through a very unique airbag deployment system. So basically, as the capsule comes down, when it gets in close proximity to the ground, it deploys a very large airbag that immediately slows down the aircraft, or I'm sorry, the spacecraft on impact. Um, now this is very unique because a lot of other capsules that do have the capability of landing on land uh, don't do it that way. Uh, the Soyuz, for example, uses soft landing motors that, that fire on touchdown. SpaceX, when they were developing the Dragon, they also had a similar system where they were hoping to use the Dracos to fire and, and uh, break that trajectory down for a soft landing. They have since, since scrapped that plan. Or even if you look at the new Shepard capsule, again, that's not orbital class, but similarly, it also lands in the desert and it uses a cushion of air. But as far as I know, no one really uses this airbag deployment system, and it's a very unique feature. Um, and they have had very good success with this. And I think it's a very unique feature that you can choose to bring Starliner down, you know, in the middle of the desert, you know, out in the west of the United States, or you can put it down the ocean depending on what is the best option. And it can do either one. So that gives it some flexibility depending on conditions and things of that nature. One notable difference, though, between Boeing and SpaceX, and this is important, I alluded to it earlier, is that Boeing is not launching this capsule, the Starliner, on top of its own rocket. Now, with SpaceX, when they develop Dragon, of course, that is meant to fly on top of the Falcon 9. However, Boeing, in this case, is only designing the capsule. It is meant to be launched on top of an Atlas V N-22 rocket that's made by ULA. So, one notable difference there, um, but still an incredible incredible piece of machinery that they have made here in the Starliner capsule. Now, this all boiled down to the contract that NASA was issuing them. Boeing initially was given $571 million in three different installments for the development of Starliner, which they put to very good use because, again, they actually won the formal contract, which was given at $4.2 billion. $4.2 billion. 
is the portion of the money that uh, Boeing was given for Starliner, and then SpaceX was given a portion as well. Now, what's interesting here is that SpaceX, uh, this is very key, in fact, SpaceX only received about half as much. They received, I believe, like $2.6 billion. Boeing got $4.2 billion, so almost there's a, there's a big factor difference between those two. But Boeing still hasn't flown and SpaceX has flown successfully multiple times. So we're still waiting on this, and again, NASA's put a lot of money into this, and here you have SpaceX that got half of much, and it's still flying successfully. So we're still waiting on Boeing to come around. Obviously, developing a new spacecraft takes a lot of time, a lot of ingenuity, and it has to be done properly, and that's something that Boeing has been very particular about in how they have developed this. Um, one also important key aspect of the Boeing contract is that it allows Boeing to use the vehicle for commercial tourism as well. What this means is that on an approved NASA flight, of course, they could potentially sell off one of their remaining seats and they could put a space tourist on board and earn extra revenue that way. Now, again, there's a lot of key parameters that have to be met with that. Um, obviously not to interfere with a NASA mission. This also does allow those same vehicles to be used in a, in a purely space tourism fashion, I assume, if Boeing wanted to do that. Uh, but it is a very unique aspect that Boeing has uniquely crafted into their contract, and that could prove to be a very lucrative option for them as well. The contract that Boeing received includes one test flight with a NASA crew aboard. Again, this is after the initial testing is done, and at least two not to exceed six additional crewed flights to the ISS. And again, very, very important. These are, these are really incredible contracts that both SpaceX and Boeing was able to be given and awarded. Um, so it's, it's unique to see how Boeing has stepped up and produced the Starliner from this. Now, Starliner is an incredible spacecraft. I do not want to minimize that. It, it is incredible. Again, it does pull some very significant um, features from past era vehicles, but it's still incredible. Like, this is an incredible... I cannot wait to see this thing fly. But the development of Starliner has been plagued with an incredible amount of challenges. And I must emphasize this. This is Boeing. They've been involved in this kind of work for a very long time now. And it's rather shocking to see how many challenges that they've run into under the development of this capsule. Just the capsule. Um, now, the development has been slow but steady, and honestly, the slowness of the development of Boeing probably would not have been noticeable uh, had it not been for SpaceX. SpaceX, of course, is using the Silicon Valley approach of development, which is high-speed, rapid prototyping, getting things up, and just rapidly replacing things that uh, need to be fixed. However, Boeing is following a more traditional spacecraft development, which kind of the same path that NASA would take, very slow and steady. We want to make the vehicles correct the first time. It just takes a long time. But again, um, Boeing has done everything the correct way. I want to emphasize that. They've taken their time, but they have put a lot of effort into this to make sure that what they are building is viable. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting now to see, again, that SpaceX has kind of won. Not that it was a race, but they are kind of in the lead, having multiple successful flights now, and Boeing still waiting in line for their first opportunity to prove flight viability. The process was good. Uh, the, the progress they've made through the development has been very good. They have tested their abort systems very well. They even did an airbag deployment test, which was really cool, just to verify that that system worked, and all that went great. 
Everything was going fine until they decided to actually launch this thing on their first test flight, also known as OFT, the Orbital Flight Test to the International Space Station. The capsule that was being flown for this one was the third one they had built called the Calypso Capsule. Um, and it, it had a flawless launch. Again, it was stacked on top of the UL, ULA Atlas V N-22 rocket, had a great flight for about the first 30 minutes. And then at minute 31, something very important happened. A critical maneuver was missed. And people were not certain as to why this happened, but it was determined later that the mission elapsed time clock, the thing, the basically the, the clock piece on top of the spacecraft that tells it when to do certain things that are pre-programmed into the flight. This clock, which is extremely crucial, was off by 11 hours. 11 hours, people. This is coming from people that have been designing stuff like this for years upon years, decades upon decades. 11 hours like this is this is ridiculous and while attempts were made to solve this problem and get the clock to read the correct time as far as the mission had been progressing um it it, it was not able to be done in the correct amount of time and in the process too much fuel aboard starliner was used up when this happened the whole mission had to be reevaluated, and what it resulted in was that the planned rendezvous with the International Space Station, which again would have kind of sealed the deal on the abilities of Starliner to NASA prior to the first test launch with crew aboard, that rendezvous had to be kicked out the window. It had to be completely aborted because it was determined that uh, basically Starliner did not have enough fuel on board to conduct those maneuvers at this point. So this resulted in that abort to rendezvous, and they kind of redid the mission. They said, well, let's try to get as much use out of this as we can. Obviously, it's up there. Let's see what we can do. And they reduced the entire mission time from the originally planned eight days down to three days. But in actuality, it ended up really being just about two days, like two days and one hour, just two days, because of the issues they had had with the mission elapsed time clock being off by 11 hours. Now, Starliner was put into a stationary orbit, and Boeing was very key, especially afterwards, saying that this was accomplished. However, this orbit was not an ideal one. The orbital inser insertion was not nominal. Uh, it produced um, not the ideal orbit that you would want to see for this spacecraft. Uh, but it, it did actually produce that orbit, and then finally they were able to go ahead and deorbit it and land it in New Mexico with the airbags, which did go flawlessly. Had a great touchdown in the White Sands Space Harbor, or also known as the White Sands Missile Range, out there in New Mexico. Landed, parachutes deployed, and the airbags deployed, and it was it was a great conclusion considering everything that had plugged this thing so far. What was interesting is that after this flight, when NASA did their review with Boeing, it was determined that 80, 8, 0, 80 items were identified as needing correction. Now, to the public, we don't get to see that list. That's considered confidential information. Some of those things are shared um, through public channels, but we don't see that whole list. But 80 items, that is that's terrible. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And I remember they're also planning on using this for space tourism. I mean, if you hear these stats right now and you were considering going into space, uh, I don't care how appealing going into orbit would be, but you hear these stats on this capsule. I mean, that makes one wonder. Now, again, the life support systems, all those things worked great. But again, if this thing can't fly correctly, I'm not sure I'd sign up for it. 
but 80 different items were needing to be corrected and it was said afterwards by one of the um the boeing administrators that the flight as a whole was about 60 percent successful and again all things considered how things went i can't say that's too terrible i mean um it could have been much worse uh you really could have had a situation perhaps with too much fuel burn that they couldn't have uh, deorbited the right location. It could have burned up on the way back in. It could have been a lot worse, but all things considered, um, they did get a lot of good valuable data and feedback out of that mission, the OFT mission with Calypso. Um, those 80 items took a long time to correct. About a year and a half it took before it was actually able to be considered to refly again. And that was going to be OF2. Now again, OF2, the second orbital flight test, was never really uh, planned. Uh, again, if the first one had gone correctly, we would have been looking at the first crew demo launch to prove the technology with um, a human on board. However, since the first OFT was terrible, I don't know what else to call it, it was terrible, um, NASA directed Boeing, and Boeing of course agreed that they needed to do a second test flight of this. And again, so a year and a half it took to get all those 80 items corrected and then proceed to get this thing ready to be launched. Uh, the proposed launch was supposed to be July of 2021. And because of some issues that the International Space Station was having with one of their modules, uh, they wound up having to push that back from July into August. So the proposed flight date was going to be August the 3rd of 2021. And if you're listening to this in real time, this was not too long ago, about a week and a half ago. So they took the, the second capsule now and they installed it on top of the Atlas 5 and 22 rocket produced by ULA getting ready for this launch. And again, what I find interesting here, and you'll see in a moment, was that they did not even give a name to this capsule. Um, again, the first one, you know, we call it Calypso. It's going to be great. This time they're like, yeah, it's just the capsule. We're going to put it up here and get done what needs to get done. So they installed it and they rolled this out to the pad. This is very important for what I'm about to tell you next. So this thing is out there in a launch configuration, ready to get this thing fueled and you know actually perform what it needs to do. Um, during the checks, it was discovered that the valve position indicators were not nominal. So as they're doing their checks, and again, this is not checks on the rocket. ULA says their rocket's fine. This is just checks on the capsule that Boeing has provided. And they're getting some, some bad indications that the valve positions are not where they should be. So Boeing sends its engineers out to the launch pad, again, to examine the capsule and figure out what is going on with these valve position indicators that are saying the valves are not in the right position. When the engineers were doing their check at the pad, get this, it was discovered that 13 propulsion valves were stuck in the closed position. 13 propulsion valves. Are you kidding me? It makes one wonder how in the world did this thing make it to the pad? This is ridiculous. So they had to take the entire stacked rocket and roll the whole thing back to the vertical integration facility, remove the capsule from the rocket and work on it. And to this day, they are still working on it. And I have to explain this, that it is exceedingly rare that you have to bring back an entire vehicle back all the way to the vehicle building. This is a serious problem. And you have to de-stack the rocket. Like, this is a major deal. So they, they bring in the capsule. And initially, when this 
first came out, again, they had to scrub the flight. They were saying that it, the media was saying that it was going to take several months uh, of a delay to fix the problem. And again, that's pretty typical for Boeing. Again, for them, it takes them much longer to correct issues than, say, a SpaceX, just the way they do their developmental processes. But after that was released saying it was going to be several months, meaning they might not get it by the end of the year. And by the way, Boeing is under contract to get a crew demo flight up by the end of the year. So if this thing is drastically delayed by several months, that could put that second flight of the demo flight with a human on board in jeopardy. So after this story broke that Boeing was going to take months to repair this capsule, Boeing came out and very optimistically said that they expected to have this thing repaired and ready for launch by the end of the month, by the end of August. And I have to say, they're like, ha, are you kidding me? 13 valves stuck and you're telling me that you're going to get this thing up and ready for an actual successful launch by the end of the month, you know, within weeks. I, I think that's ridiculous. Well, we are sitting here now over a week and a half later and the engineers with the capsule on the ground inside the vehicle building, they have only been able to actuate and open seven of the 13 valves. Six of them are still refusing to budge. And again, you have to say, this is a test flight. Why did we not test this? How in the world did this actually make it into launch configuration? This is, this is ridiculous. So it's very interesting to see how this, this is progressing for Boeing and for Starliner. And again, all the while, SpaceX is launching Dragon and having no issues and a ton of success. So I'll be honest, I'm very happy there are multiple options for the commercial crew program. NASA did that correctly. It's important to have multiple people trying to produce the product to do the job that you want to do, case in point with Boeing. If, if Boeing, ha I mean, if NASA had not selected both Boeing and SpaceX, nothing would be launching on U.S. soil to the International Space Station. So it's good to have multiple vendors for this. But seriously, Boeing really needs to step it up. This is ridiculous considering how long Boeing has been around in this era and in the spacecraft industry, and they're being completely dominated by the new kid on the block, SpaceX. Um, and you have to wonder, well, will it be too late? I mean, SpaceX is literally dominating this thing. They've had multiple flights. Everything's going good there. And what this could mean is that because... Again, SpaceX is kind of ahead of the game. They're launching successfully. It could mean that um, some of the flights that could have gone in the future to Boeing, NASA might reposition them to SpaceX. Uh, they're obviously getting it for a cheaper price. They're getting it more reliably, more safely. Um, so we don't know, but it's going to be interesting to see how this whole thing plays out if maybe it, it just has been too late. Um, I do hope to see Starliner fly. I know that it will. There's been this much money put into it already, so it, it's going to have to fly. And it's always exciting to see new entries into spaceflight, but we just want them to be safe and to work properly. And of course, we don't want to have to wait forever for them. And unfortunately, while the Starliner is incredible, we've had to wait a long time and there's just been a lot of issues. But hopefully the engineers are figuring this thing out. Hopefully the OF2 flight, OFT2 flight is going to go 
phenomenally and flawlessly after they figure out this valve issue. And uh, we'll have another great provider for the commercial crew program heading to the International Space Station. But I have to ask you, what do you think about Boeing's CST-100 Starliner? Do you think it's going to fly in August? Do you think it's going to take longer than that like I do? Uh, is this a lost cause because it's been so delayed and has so many issues? Or do you think this will prove to be another valuable asset of options for NASA to get astronauts into orbit and into the and to the International Space Station. I would love to hear your thoughts about this of what you think. Uh, please reach out to me. You can reach out to me on Instagram. That is the best way to get a hold of me. My handle there is at jsimnow. That's J-A-Y-S-I-M-N-O-W. I love hearing from our incredible group of listeners, and we have some of the best listeners that tune into this podcast. I want to say thank you for that, but I love hearing from you. I love hearing your feedback, questions about particular things we discuss in episodes, and also future value that you are looking to get from this podcast. I love hearing about that because it helps me prepare for the future and give you the best value for what you listen to. And as always, I hope that you leave this episode feeling inspired. Thanks for joining me on the Ignited Flight Podcast and have a stellar day.